0: We are there. We go. Um, we're in a conversation about uh, what does the Lord require of us. That's the the question we talked about last week. Uh, the idea is that in in our lives, most of us come up come to a point at some place or maybe all the time uh, where we where we have a sense of conviction that we have not been the kind of people that God wanted us to be. We have not done the things that God wanted us to be, and uh, to do. And so we we say what what do i have to do now how do i get out of this jam i'm in with god and and the the prophet asks the question uh, does god want a bunch of sacrifices do you have to go on a pilgrimage do you have to become uh, do you have to enter a convent what does god want from you and the answer is god wants us to do justless to do do justice to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with god that that's really all god wants and it's not a question of what you can do to kind of restore that just simply uh, go forward doing those things. So that's the conversation we've had and uh we are now in week 2. We're going to look at each one of those things in turn doing justice, uh, loving, mercy or kindness and then uh in the fourth week we'll wrap it up by looking at walking humbly with God. And unfortunately we're starting with the hardest one first. Uh justice is hard. Justice is um astonishingly hard. Uh, and and um it doesn't seem like it, but as you mature you realize things uh, those gray areas start to baffle us, um, and, and, and we have trouble with justice. Um, uh, and, and I think it's instructive that the prophet doesn't say to love justice. He says to love kindness. But with justice, it's simply enough if you do justice. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about justice today. And um, my own kind of the, the, the experience I had that made me realize how hard justice is is when I was in seminary, my middle year in seminary, I uh, served uh, full-time uh, during the summer as, a, as an assistant chaplain, a, a volunteer chaplain, whatever the title was, a chaplain at the local prison. And um, uh, I did that all summer long, full-time, and then the following year I did it as a volunteer on a part-time basis during the week and um, uh what i discovered in the prison system is that is that justice is hard um, let me give you an example of hard justice uh, there was a person in in one of my bible studies who uh came to the bible studies and and after he'd been he'd been participating for i don't know uh several months the uh the head chaplain told me to go to the admin building and uh get his file and read his file and, and understand what his story was. And so I uh I, I did. And uh when I was when I was reading his file, um, I found out that he had uh raped a, a young girl, a very young girl, uh an appallingly young girl. And his sentence was eight years. And I thought to myself, that is a travesty of justice. There is no way. I had a I had a young girl of my own, um, and I said to myself, there is no way that is justice. It is not justice that he is serving eight years for that. But the reason that the chaplain sent me to the admin building to read his file was because he had been strangled. Because it doesn't go well for sex offenders in prisons. And particularly uh, people where minors are involved. And he had been put in the population for uh, two years of an eight-year term. He was able to keep a low profile, and no one found him out. But eventually they did. Uh, somehow, you know, somebody came into the population who knew him from the neighborhood, or uh, somehow or another, whatever, whatever the circumstances were, somebody found out what his secret was, and he was a short-timer after that, and quickly enough he was murdered. And I don't think that's justice either. I I, I don't think it's just to put somebody in a prison uh, where he will be hunted down for the next two years, knowing at any moment something could slip and he could die. I don't think that's justice either. And I I, I decided justice is hard. I don't know what is just in a case like that. In, in In the time I was serving at that prison, I probably talked to 150 people and um, had had meaningful conversations with um, maybe 20 or 30. Uh, and I can't say I got to know them because nobody lets you know them in prison. But I got to know a little bit about them. And uh, I, I don't think I met during that time, those people I talked to, I don't think I met anyone who was innocent. But I did meet people who had not had justice served. I think most of them had not had justice served. The one I gave you an exam, as an example was an extreme case. But, but honestly, when you're dealing with somebody who grew up, uh, he's the fourth generation in his family tree who has not had a father because the father's been in prison, who has a fifth grade education, and who lives in a poor neighborhood where the most obvious way to make any kind of living is selling drugs, you have to ask yourself, how just is it to send him to jail um, on a, on a um, three-time loser, I forget what it's called, the uh, repeat offender thing, where he's now doing doing 25 to life for um, for selling pot to somebody. So I don't know whether that's justice either. Justice is hard. Justice is an amazingly hard topic, and it's it's reflected in the fact we spend 74 billion dollars on justice in our country every year. 74 billion dollars on justice. We have uh, two and a half million people behind bars. That is uh, a quarter of the world's population of inmates are in this country. Uh, we have we have a twentieth of the world's population, but we have a quarter of the inmates in our country. We have um, we have a problem with justice in our society. We have about the same crime rate as most developed countries. We have a little less property crime and a little more violent crime, but the overall crime rate's about the same. So it's not like our level of incarceration is solving any problems that aren't being solved anywhere else or creating problems, for that matter. But there is a cost. Besides the $74 billion, there's the social cost. You have multiple generations of families where there are no fathers. Uh, A a typical person, one of the clerks who worked in in the chaplain's office, his his father had been killed in a prison at 32. And that's a typical age of, of somebody who's been in the prison system in New Jersey. And then on top of that, there's the idea of, of injustice as it affects us. It's one thing to talk about it in the abstract, when it's affecting society and maybe our tax bill. But then there's the question of when it affects us. When somebody robs our house or steals our car... We want justice to be served. And if it's not served, then it adds insult to the injury. We've suffered an injury, and then on top of that, we have to deal with the the insult of that. And so we want justice to be served uh, because it's, it's a first step toward toward healing. And, and when we don't get it, we know that we've had that insult added. Uh, and then there's the possibility, it's not likely, but it happens, uh, that we might be the victim of injustice ourselves. We might be falsely accused. There's a organization called the Innocence Project that keeps track of these things and they ha- they have a statistic they say since 1989 since DNA, when DNA testing began 312 people have been exonerated people who have been imprisoned they've been convicted and sent to prison and they have been exonerated due to DNA evidence in this country just since testing began in 1989. 312 people serving an average of 10 years before they get out of prison. So uh, there are some things to be concerned about. Innocent people going to jail for long periods of time. Justice is hard. Justice is not lovable. Justice is simply hard. But if God tells us to do something that is hard, then it stands to reason that God would tell us how we can do it. Particularly if it's something hard. If God tells us to do something hard, Then God is going to tell us how. And God does. God gives us a lot of wisdom in the scriptures about how we can do justice. Because justice is more than simply not doing evil. Justice is dealing with the consequences of evil when they do occur, whether we did them or somebody else did them. So there's uh, all kinds of information in the Bible. There's all kinds of wisdom. There's teaching in the Bible. But best of all, there's stories because uh, we'll look at one of the one of the uh, uh, things that the Bible has to say about justice, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to look at this story because it tells us the exact same thing in a way that's much more memorable. the 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 lesson, if you have to get up earlier, if I offend you, because um, I probably will, um, is uh, that justice should be blind. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Um, this uh, uh, lesson from the scriptures. David uh, is king over Israel, and if you look at the backstory, story, uh, they've been at war with the Ammonites. The Ammonites started some trouble, but in those days you stopped the war when the winter weather came, and so now spring has come, and it's time to resume the war. Um, so it's spring of the year, the battle uh, has begun. David doesn't participate. David uh, uh, says, I'm not feeling up to it today, so I'm just going to send Joab off. Joab will fight the battle, and so he does. He stays behind in Jerusalem, and he is uh, lounging around the house one day. And he looks over. Uh, women in that culture would often bathe on the top of their house. Uh, the The roof of the house was shielded, right? There was a wide open windows and so forth. So uh, it was actually a fairly private place for people to bathe, except if the guy up in the palace is staring down at you. So he sees Uriah's wife. Bathing, and he says, "Who's that?" And somebody tells her, "Oh, that's Uriah's wife." So he sends his his minions to go fetch her, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And then David says, "Oops, I got to cover this up." So he tries to get Uriah. He has Uriah brought back from the front. He tries to get Uriah to go back home and sleep with his wife, and instead, Uriah stays in the barracks. And uh, so David says, "Okay." You've written your own death warrant. In fact, you're going to carry your own death warrant. And so he gives a note to Joab saying, put Uriah in the thickest part of the fighting and then draw back from him. And that's what happens. Joab does that because David's a king. People do what kings tell them to do, particularly in that era. This is 3,000 years ago. People do what kings tell them to do. So Joab says, you got it. He puts not just Uriah, But a squad of soldiers, all up close to the battle where, where they're exposed, and then he pulls back and Uriah and others are killed to cover up this crime of David's. So David gets away clean. Nobody knows it except his minions and people like Joab. But then the verse, the chapter ends by telling us that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. Um, Nathan is actually an ally of David's. We see as their, their relationship continues, uh, he has had a positive relationship with uh, with David and will continue to have um, in the years ahead. But God sends him to David and tells him to confront him. So he goes to David and he tells him this parable about the man with the sheep. David is a shepherd. That's how he got famous, right? David and Goliath. I, I, could, I could beat up the giant because I used to beat up lions and bears who came after my sheep. So he tells them a story about a man with a sheep. And David hears the story about how this rich man took the poor man's sheep and his anger is greatly kindled. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. That's the greatest penalty that the Old Testament law allowed. There's this, there's this phrase that I don't really have much use for. It's this word, social justice, or this term, social justice. I don't like the term social justice because, really, all justice is social justice. See, there's nothing you can do at this point to restore the man's lamb. The lamb is gone. It's been eaten. And there's nothing you can do to restore that. There's nothing you can do for Uriah. He's dead. There's nothing you can do for Uriah's wife because her husband's been killed and the other military widows that David created. There's nothing you can do to restore their situation. All you can do is take a step in that direction in the form of restitution. So the Old Testament law says, uh, we can't get you back your lamb, but you can have four new lambs. He owes you four lambs uh, because he took yours. That's not going to heal you, but it's a step in that direction. It's a first step toward healing. So, So that's a piece of it. There is a restitution piece. But it's also designed to to punish wrongdoing, to discourage people from doing wrong. It's also to stop people from saying, I didn't get justice, I'm going to go get my own justice. I'm going to get vengeance. So it is a social role. Justice has a social role. Its purpose is to stop people from seeking vengeance and to make them feel that they are safe because because wrongdoers are punished. So David says... This man should pay the restitution, and he should die. David pronounces sentence. And then Nathan says, well, that's you. And then he goes on, explains what the repercussions are going to be for David because of that. And David confesses his sin, and famously in Psalm 51, uh, he, he writes a, a psalm uh, talking about how, how that experience uh, left him. But the lesson, the lesson for us, well, there's two lessons. First of all, don't be David, right? Don't call in from work, call in work, say, I'm feeling sick today. When you're not, um, actually take a day off. Don't just take a sick day. So don't do that. Don't get wandering eyes. Don't sleep with people who aren't your wife, who are somebody else's wife. Don't commit murder. Don't suborn perjury. Don't do all those things. Don't do that. That's, that's an easy one. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's an easy one. Maybe the calling in from work sick thing is a little harder, but I'm hoping that, that that's the easy part. But the lesson is not to be not David. The lesson is to be Nathan. To do justice. To see injustice and to confront it. And that's what Nathan does. Even when it's your friend. Even when it's a powerful king to do justice, and that 's the question: do we do that? We hope so, but maybe we don 't let me uh, Let me show you this person. maybe some uh, this is where it 's going to get frustrating to some of you, so I wanted to know I tried to balance this out uh, when you talk about justice you 're talking about policy, which means you 're talking about politics. I try to avoid politics, but i can 't so i picked one from each side so um, if you could go ahead to the uh, to the first slide uh, with a picture on it, this is David Gregory. He is a, he's a, a journalist. He works for NBC News. A year ago, a year and a bit ago, he was reporting on uh, uh, high capacity magazines in in rifles after the Newtown, Connecticut tragedy, and he had a person from the NRA there, and he held up this uh, magazine which holds thirty um, rounds, and uh, and the problem is, by doing so, he was breaking the law. There's a lot here. I'm just going to read this. So David Gregory displayed what he identified as a magazine for ammunition. He had requested permission from the Metropolitan Police Department to include a high-capacity magazine in the segment and was denied. So he went ahead and displayed the magazine in the show anyway and um, uh, broke the law in doing so. Having that in his possession in Washington, D.C. was against the law. So he broke the law. But it's okay. D.C. Attorney General Irvin Nathan said he would not prosecute. His office had determined to exercise its prosecutorial discretion to decline to bring criminal charges against Gregory or other NBC employees, despite the clarity of the violation of the law, because it would not promote public safety nor serve the best interests of the people of district. So that's fair enough, right? He's a journalist. He clearly wasn't going to go kill anybody with that uh, magazine So um, why not let him off, right? Well, let me tell you about somebody else. The next picture, please. This man is James Brinkley. Three months earlier, in September of 2012, he was arrested for having a magazine that can have more than 10 rounds. Brinkley was dropping his wife and child in D.C. before going to a gun range to practice for an exam to qualify to be hired by the U.S. Marshal Service. He called the D.C. Metro Police Department in advance to find out how to transport his weapons through D.C. legally. He followed police instructions, putting his Glock 22 in a box with a big padlock in the trunk of his Dodge Charger. Two 15-round magazines were not in the gun, and he had no ammunition with him. When he dropped off his wife and child, he asked an official if he could leave the baby seat with them. The official noticed he had an empty holster, which kicked off a traffic stop in search of his trunk. He was booked on two counts of possessing a high-capacity magazine and one of possessing an unregistered gun. He refused to take a plea bargain and admit guilt. At trial, the judge sided with Brinkley. He was found not guilty on all firearms charges and left with just a traffic ticket. So the question is, did he receive the same justice as David Brinkley? I mean, as David uh, Gregory. David Gregory uh, just just got a pass from the Attorney General. He had to go to court He had to go through the expense and inconvenience of clearing his name. Did he get the same justice? I don't think he did. So what is the moral? Is the moral that our legal system should go after wealthy, privileged white people with the same vigor that they go after anonymous black people? Is that the lesson? Well, before you decide that that's the lesson, let me show you the next picture. I don't know if you know who this person is. Um, If you look at the back of your bulletin, where did I put my bulletin? On the back page of your bulletin, there's little fine print legal legalese at the bottom, copyright notice. We have to do that because copyright law says so. So it says at the top of that legalese, it says, cover illustration, creative commons, and then it says who it's from and the different requirements. Creative commons is an organization that was created a couple of years ago to deal with the complexity of copyright law. The idea is that creators, artists and writers, composers, could put something into what was called the creative commons, where it had different legal protections than the public domain. The public domain says it's wide open, do what you want. A creative commons has different controls, but the idea is it's something that allows people to use your work in a way that's legally protected. So they don't get in trouble if your work is found to be infringing somebody else, and so forth. So that's what Creative Commons is. Uh, this fellow here, Aaron Swartz, uh, helped develop the Creative Commons a couple of years ago. Um, Aaron Swartz, he, um, he helped develop the Creative Commons organization. He also developed a web feed format called RSS, which is a technical thing that you use even though you don't know you use it. Um, and he also helped develop a social news site called Reddit, Reddit's kind of like on Facebook when people send you a a note, you know, some political thing, you know, I support this thing or whatever, and then their friends all like it, and then their non-friends, their relatives all say, you know, you're a moron or whatever, you know. That's what Reddit is, only it's really built into the system. And the idea is instead of having one editor or two or three editors, the entire universe is the editor. They they vote stories up or down based on whether they think that they're a good story or interesting or whatever, so so it's kind of the, the highest-voted stories. That's what Reddit is, and you can go look at whatever topic is interesting to you. Uh, Aaron Swartz uh, helped um, create Reddit. And um, in January of 2011, he was arrested by MIT police on state breaking and entering charges for downloading academic journal articles. Federal prosecutors later charged him with two counts of wire fraud and 11 violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, carrying a cumulative maximum penalty of a $1 million in fines, 50 years in prison, asset forfeiture, restitution and supervised release. Prosecutors eventually offered Swartz a deal to avoid trial in which he'd have to plead guilty to all 13 charges and spend 6 months behind bars. Early last year, Swartz was found dead in his apartment where he had hanged himself. He was 26. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig wrote why it was so necess- why was it so necessary that Aaron Swartz be labeled a felon. For in the 18 months of negotiations, that's what he was not willing to accept. It was the reason he was facing a million-dollar trial. Fifty years in jail charges our government. Somehow we need to get beyond the I'm right, so I'm right to nuke you ethics that dominates our time. That begins with one word, shame. So Lessig says the problem is prosecutorial misconduct, that they had the, the big club, which is 50 years and a million dollars, but they said if you plead then you'll only get six months. And he could not bring himself to plead, and so he committed suicide. So maybe the answer is not to go after wealthy, privileged white people either. So what is the lesson? The lesson is what we see in Scripture. Justice should be blind. If you're willing to go after a David Gregory as strenuously as you go after a James Brinkley, then pass a law accordingly and then carry it out accordingly. But if you're unwilling to treat the two equally, then maybe you shouldn't have that law. So that's the principle in Scripture. That's why we see statues that have pictures like this. Can you show us the... So this is why justice is blindfolded. Justice carries a sword because you will be punished for your wrongdoing, and she carries scales so she can weigh out guilt and innocence. But she's blindfolded, so like Nathan, she can confront the rich and the powerful or the poor and the weak. That's what Scripture calls us to do to carry out justice. So that's the lesson. I'm going to end with um, some ideas of my own. So this is not the Bible. This is free. This is teaching. The teaching part's done. I'm going to challenge you, though, to think about how can we do this, right? I don't know David. Okay, David's dead. I don't know anybody who's committed a murder. I don't know. I've met some, um, but I don't know them. Um, What do we do with this? How can we as citizens do justice in our society? Well, I think the first step is juries. How many of you have ever either or thought about dodging jury duty? I mean, I, I know I've thought about it for sure. It's, it comes at a terrible time. Who wants to do jury duty, right? Juries are the most important thing we can do as a citizen to ensure that there's justice. So don't skip jury duty. The other thing you can do is you can say, why is it we hate jury duty? Maybe we need to elevate the role of juries in our country. Theoretically, juries are as important as anybody else, any other player in the system. And you will hear a speech when you go do your jury duty about how important you are as a juror. But nobody believes it, including the people who tell you that speech. And the proof of it is this. Compare the room where you were waiting before you heard the speech with the judge's chambers. If your jury waiting room looks like the judge's chambers, then you're as important as the judge. And if it doesn't, then you are a flunky. So ask yourself as a society, why is it the juries are so disrespected? Why does the system conspire against juries? Ask yourself what changes have to be made to, to improve the role of juries. The second thing is of course you're not gonna see a, you're not gonna be on a jury. You're not gonna be on a jury by, by good odds because we don't do jury trials anymore. 95% of co- convictions in this country are plea bargains. And we have to ask ourselves how many of them are things like the Aaron Swartz matter where the prosecutor comes to them and says You can have 50 years behind bars, you can have six months. What's it going to be? The only thing is you have to sign away your right to a jury trial to get the six-month deal. So when when the election campaign comes up and the person's running for attorney general or whatever, they're saying, when I was a district attorney, I had this great conviction rate. Ask yourself, how many of those were jury trials and how many of them were plea bargains? Because... That's a good indicator of whether this person is really after justice or after a conviction rate. So ask yourself about plea bargains. And then the last thing is ask yourself about laws. I saw a book and I don't remember the title I remember the title. I don't remember the author, but the the reason it came to my attention was the foreword was by Alan Dershowitz, the criminal defence lawyer. And the title of the book is Three Felonies a Day. And it gets its name from the fact that in America, most adult citizens commit three felonies a day, whether you know it or not. We have so many laws, we have so many laws that carry the force, uh, regulations that carry the the force of law, that each of us commits on average three felonies a day. And that's how come the police arrest us for two charges, but then we get charged ultimately with 11, because... They throw the book at us. They find things that they can they can add to because we've committed three felonies that day. So ask yourself, do we need a law system that is so complicated that I'm committing three felonies every day? So those are my, my uh, bits of advice. They're not in the Bible. You get those for free. But I've been reflecting on this all week, and that's the best thing I can come up with or the first things I can come up with is to say, if justice is hard... And if the Scriptures teach me to to treat the powerful and the poor, the rich and the weak, equally, how can I do that? And the best answer I've got so far is, is a jury system. A jury system that's actually used instead of plea bargains and enough clarity in our legal code that people know when they're breaking the law. That's the best I can do, but that's not in the Bible. What I would encourage you to do is think about it. God doesn't tell us to love justice. Justice is not lovable. Justice is hard, but instead of being the 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 still the still um statue the golden one, can you go back to the golden one instead of being this justice, maybe what we need to be is this justice. <laughs> uh, Both of these pictures are from the Creative Commons, by the way. Um, I like this one. This is a justice that's more active. Not just standing there with her sword, but she's going to cut off somebody's head, it looks like. Um, That's what we're called to do. We're called to do justice. Not to love it, but to do it. Not to be David. To be Nathan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, justice is hard. It must have been incredibly hard for Nathan to go to David. And tell him how he'd sinned. And it's hard in our society. We don't know what would happen without plea bargains. We don't know what would happen without our legal system. We don't know what we'd do if we had to get on the number of juries that would be involved if we didn't have them. Justice is hard, Lord. So we pray for courage that we can do what is right. And we pray for wisdom that we would know what we can do as citizens to make justice more uniformly delivered. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.